This is Changing Channels with Larry Walsh, the channel nomics podcast that connects you with channel chiefs, thought leaders, and executives about what it takes to get the next generation of tech to market. Here's your host, Larry Walsh, the CEO and Chief Analyst of Channelnomics. Hey everyone, thanks for joining in again. As the lady said, I'm Larry Walsh, the CEO of Channelnomics, and today we're going to talk about selling. Now, you've heard me say this before about the problems that we have with partners and their ability to sell or their inability to sell. I mean, it's still astounding to me that more than 50% of channel partners in the technology market do not have sales plans or sales goals. Uh, and that really does hamper their ability to take your products to market and get them sold to the customers. Um, but there's other factors involved in the sales process, in the ability to effectively execute. And one of the things I hear constantly from channel chiefs and sales executives is that it is that the nature of selling is changing. The world is dynamic. And then particularly over the past year, where we had such upheaval caused by the pandemic is that whole uh, sales teams had to relearn the art of selling and doing it differently out of necessity because of the remote conditions. Well, we're not just talking about what has been today. We're not just talking about what was, uh, you know, the impact of the pandemic on selling, but the, dy the dynamic nature of selling in a dynamic marketplace. And this is something that is just constantly changing. The world changes on a daily basis and the expectations of customers are changing almost day to day or year. I'm sorry, not day to day, but more year to year. Um, and this is what is making the topic of sales or how we should be rethinking sales uh, even more prescient. So I have the honor today of being joined by somebody who does this for a living. He just thinks about how to sell better. Uh, our new friend for Channelnomics is Frank Sapitas. He is a senior lecturer of business, administrator at, at business administration at Harvard Business School, and he is the author of the new book, Sales Management That Works, How to Sell in a World That Never Stops Changing. So with that, Frank, welcome to Changing Channels. Harry, thank you very, very much uh, for the opportunity. I've admired uh, the podcast I've seen on Changing Channels, and it's my honor to be speaking with you. Uh, you know, okay, mutual admiration. We'll put that aside for now. Not only that, but folks, before we got on the podcast, Frank and I were talking, uh, you know, and I'm a Boston boy living in New York. Frank's a New York guy living in Boston. So, you know, we, we got symbiosis going on here. We just don't go to Red Sox Yankee games. That's all. You know, why would you? I mean, it's, you know, there's only two teams in baseball, right? Red Sox and Yankees. Um, look, let's start with the, the subtitle of your book, uh, How to Sell in a World That Never Stops Changing. Um, where, what, first, what is the impetus of, of the book? Where did the, you know, where, what caused you to sit down and, and pen these words? Uh, I basically had uh, two motivations uh, in writing this book. The first motivation, uh, essentially a professional intellectual motivation. Of all the core business activities, sales and selling are by far the most context specific. Now, when I say this, what I find is that many managers and executives nod, but it's been astounding to me throughout my career how often they forget it. Selling software is different than selling capital goods is different than selling professional services. Selling five, six, seven-year license software is different than software as a service. Selling in North America is different than selling in Latin America and Asia, et cetera. 
very context specific. Yet for some reason, sales is that area of business where people feel most comfortable making huge generalizations, usually unsupported by any empirical data except n equals one. When I sold for Google, when we invested in PayPal, that kind of thing. So, you know, after 30 years of looking at this topic, uh, I wanted to write a book that says, here's what research does and doesn't tell you about this core activity in business. The other reason is I think this is a particularly good time for a book like this. There is no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that the uh, data revolution, which will continue throughout our careers, uh, digital technologies are affecting buying and selling. But my reading of what people say about that is they very often misunderstand the managerial implications of what's going on. And as you alluded to earlier, I think the pandemic makes this very important to get it right, to separate fact from hype. So th those were my motivations, Larry. Yeah. You know, it, I, one of the things I found interesting, so an excerpt of the book that was published in Harvard Business Review, and which, by the way, is one of my Bibles for, for learning about what people are thinking in terms of business best, best practices. Um, there was a line that stood out. It's that you, you basically said you must consider whether the past is prologue. Uh, and one of the things that you, and, and hearing you say that, because there's a lot of expectations that the pandemic was a reset that, and I will tell you that in the research that we do at Channelnomics, we've basically said, you cannot use 2020 as a baseline for anything, right? And you can't expect it to return to 2019 either. So you have to start fresh. So there's a lot to say that we did start over because of the pandemic. However, as you've pointed out, is that every prediction of disruption in the past that make things going to that things are going to change have often been proven false. So if the world is changing, but the predictions are not don't prove true, then what are we changing for? Yeah, I mean, first of all, um, uh, let me agree with what you're saying, and and yeah. let me cite a little data about it because people are typically surprised by this. Um, if you look at the percentage, I'm gonna use a consumer market uh, example, but if you look at the percentage of uh, total retail sales in the United States that were done online via e-commerce uh, in 2019, just before the pandemic, that percentage was about 11 and a half percent, right? 11.5, that includes Amazon, everybody. Now, when I ask executives, and for that matter, MBA students, what do you think that number was? I typically get estimates between 30 and 60%. In other words, people are not a little bit off, they're wildly off. You're also right about 2020. Um, and if you look at the second quarter of 2020, which thus far, let's cross our fingers, but thus far was maximum lockdown conditions in the US, Obviously, or at least it seems obvious to me, that when stores are closed or when they're limited to 25 or 50% of capacity, when people feel legitimately that if they go into a store, they may catch a virus and die, clearly there's gonna be more buying and selling online. But even in those maximum lockdown conditions, the percentage of online as a percentage of total retail sales 
was about 16%. In other words, it went up less than 5%, and it's been trending down every quarter since then. So you're exactly right. Most of these new normal predictions are basically simplistic straight line extrapolations of buying behavior during lockdown conditions. Don't, don't trust most of them. Now, what is changing? The most important thing about selling always is buying. Who buys why and how? And the pandemic did not create something new, but it accelerated the omni-channel buying trend that's been true for the last 10 years. It also, out of necessity, made many companies, especially tech companies, understand that in effect they were overpaying for certain tasks in their sales models. For example, lead generation. Turns out that there are elements of software or lower paid people than enterprise reps that can do that. Demos, you can do a number of demos online. Meetings, many meetings don't need to be face-to-face. -face. I think that understanding about productivity in their sales models, that will continue even after we're all vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's one of the questions that I ask when we talk, uh, when I'm talking with, with channel executives around the industry, because I hear them in, in groups that I, I participate in, have done this longing to get back out in the road and how their teams want to get back on the road. The marketing departments want to get back on the road. And I asked, I have to, I'm compelled to ask the question, are you getting back out because there is an operational necessity or are you getting back out because that's the thing you think you need to do, that it is baked into your persona or your lifestyle, that, that this is what you think that's supposed to happen. And that's the reversion back to what you think should be normal. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, first of all, you're asking those executives exactly the right questions. And for a number of them, I do think it's just legacy habits reasserting mm. themselves. But I also think it's important to understand two other things, right? Um, buying and selling for millennia have always been social as well as economic transactions. And I think the pandemic demonstrated that some of that can be done via Zoom and some of it cannot. The third and most important thing, and this is where I think um, you want to uh, take with a couple of grains of salt some of the work from home projections. Why do salespeople travel? I mean, anyone who's sold after a year or two doesn't say, oh boy, here comes another airport. I'm so excited, right? That's not why salespeople travel. They travel because they're afraid that if they're not there with that customer, their competitor will be. And in any competitive market, that part's not going to go away. So I think you're asking the right question, but there are other factors that are relevant to that. Hey, let's get back out there. Uh, motivation. Yeah, that's the thing that is. I, I hear this when it comes to events. Is a lot of marketers I've talked with want to get back to events, not because they see a compelling uh, return on the event investment, but they feel that if they get a customer there, they have a captive audience. But let's pivot on this because it's the customer we're ultimately trying to satisfy or the job of a salesperson is to help a customer part with their money. Uh, but we've been hearing for a while, even prior to 2020, is that the customer's expectations are changing, that their value assignments 
have been shifting from functionality and ROI to experience-based. Did the product, did the service help them? Did the service make them feel good? Did it, in, did it help them achieve their results, even if it costs them more money? And typically the answers to those questions have been yes. Is that also part of the acceleration we're gonna experience is that we have to recalibrate to account for customer experience? I, the, my answer to that is going to be yes, but I would also have said yes if you had asked me that question 10 years ago, 20 mm -hmm. years ago, 30 years ago, for a couple of reasons. One is change is perennial in business. I mean, there's always change in business. That's, that's part of what business is about. That's part of what competition is about. Secondly, the fact that customers buy outcomes... <laughs> not the features, there's nothing new there. You know, my mentor, wonderful man, Ted Levitt, you know, would always say to executives, remember, people don't buy two inch drill bits, they buy two inch holes. It's always been about the outcomes. Now, what I think is different and is layered on to those generic perennial issues in business and competition is the fact of omni-channel buying and what people are buying as software gets embedded in more and more products and services. The ecosystem, the required ecosystem increases. More and more companies are basically selling components in a larger usage system at their customers. And it's that usage system that delivers the value. Now that's, that I think does add to the perennial issues and frankly, Omni-channel buying then demands a multi-channel response. And that, I think, is what you hear on the customer side about who, who gave me the good experience and who did not. So I'm glad you brought up omni-channels because it, it, this, is, this terminology has been creeping into B2B selling uh, models for a couple of years. And I think it's because they hear it from their B2C brethren. Uh, that there's supposed to be this omni-channel or this seamless off online to offline, offline back to online um, you know, movement of the customer. The customer doesn't experience any change in state, but the seller does. Um, I associate that with retailers. I try, to, I try to say that this is something that B2B should be looking at, but really what is the extent of this? Because you said something that I've started thinking about as well is not just omni-channel, but multi-channel. How do you connect these different suppliers so that the customer can experience this, even if they're not in the marketplace, that they can actually touch different brands, different suppliers, and still get a singular experience? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what we need to do when we use phrases like this, omni-channel, multi-channel, is you know, understand the evolution of the language, but then what is the buying and selling reality? You're right, mm. omni-channel as a phrase began in retailing. It's not just brick and mortar, but customers are also online, et cetera. But I think out of necessity, it's also migrated into the B2B world for a couple of reasons. One is, and, and many people don't realize this, but the in terms of volume, not as a percentage of sales, but in terms of volume, e-commerce transactions in B2B are something like three to four times what they are in B2C. So in that yeah. sense, the B2B world has always been both online and offline. 
Second, B2B customers, just like consumers, are online and offline throughout their buying journeys at multiple times. And in fact, in B2B, that process is accelerated because of companies like Marketo uh, and others, where you now have buyer forums, where people who in effect have bought the product basically share their usage experience. So they know a heck of a lot about product and price even before they talk with a salesperson. And the third is that many, many sales models in B2B as they're currently configured are not equipped to deal with that omni-channel buying journey. Uh, you know, for example, if you look at inside sales models, you know, one of the fastest growing there, basically in, in models like that, sales are attributed to whatever is, as they say, the last click. But that purchase is clearly the result of a whole variety of things that have gone on in marketing, in sales, very often in customer success, and many companies in B2B are just not equipped to A, get the data about that, and then B, manage it proactively and productively. Yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge to, to actually not only get the data, but to actually do something with it. We hear this, we hear this frequently, is that their data is incomplete, their data is not accurate, their, their data is uh, you know, sometimes even conflicting uh, so they don't have single points of truth. And that really does hamper businesses from uh, from being able to optimize their go-to-markets. One of the things, though, is that um, we do hear, though, is that the, the pace of change in sales. Now, I grew up in an era where I heard that sales is, a, um, sales is an art form. It's not just a skill you acquire. It's something you have to develop. Uh, and there are natural-born salespeople. Nowadays, though, is that we hear a lot from the technology on the in the technology companies that they can't get their salespeople to adopt new products and new sales models. So if they sold hardware before, they can't sell software. If they've sold software, they can't sell subscriptions. Uh, what makes that change so difficult? And what do, what do businesses have to do to get their sales teams to evolve into these new models? Well, first, let me get back to um, what I said earlier, one of the motivations in writing the book. Sales and selling are very, very context specific. Selling hardware is different than selling software, for example. So uh, the, the beginning of wisdom here is first to recognize that, not just complain about it if you're a sales manager, and then ask yourself, uh, what are the things I can do in training, development, coaching, or whatever to accelerate that transition with the people that I believe can make that transition. The second thing is it's very important to understand what are the tasks that are important for the salesperson in a given context and what are not. What are the things they need to be really good at and what are the things they just need to be good enough at? Let me give you an example. Uh, it is a multi-channel world. I mean, I still, with companies I work with, I still sit through some meetings where uh, the uh, executives engage in quite candidly what I consider these sort of sterile Oxford University debates. Should we be online? Should we be in person? Look, third decade of the 21st century, the answer yeah. is yes. But notice what happens when a salesperson has a channel 
responsibility as well as their own selling quota and responsibility. The individual contributor, which is what most salespeople are, now has management responsibilities. That's a big transition in any function, but especially in sales. Recognize that and then work to develop it. So I think, you know, it shouldn't surprise us that when the market changes, sales tasks change, and someone who was good at X may not necessarily be good at Y. Yeah. So Frank, you know, in your book, you know, the uh, sales managements at work, you devote a lot of attention to the importance of intermediaries in channels. You know, and there has been, there's a lot of debate. I can tell you this is that, and I get drawn into it frequently is that, do we need to still work with channels given that we can automate so many things today? Uh, we have a rule is that if a human doesn't have to be involved in the sale, get the human out of the sale. And that's largely applying to commodity products that are easily sold through automated channels. Um, but do you see channels diminishing as we continue to progress forward as the world becomes more digital, or do you see this as being sustainable as, as, as an imperative for the go-to-market process? Yeah, I mean, just a, a couple of things, but the short and quick answer to your question is, uh, I don't see channels diminishing, but I certainly see channels changing. And that's an important distinction. The first though, is you're, you're alluding to something that goes way back in business history. I mean, I can show you, I wrote a book about distribution about 15 years ago. And I can show you articles from the 1930s in the business publications. The telephone system was disseminating throughout the United States. And the basic predictions were, this means the end of the distributor, the end of the intermediary, because once we have phones, why do we need them? We can call each other up. That prediction wasn't true. Fast forward to the 1950s when the national highway system was built, the same set of predictions. And then 40 years later, you know, in the 1990s, when we used to talk about the information superhighway, same predictions, we now call it disintermediation. Why are those predictions consistently been wrong? A, a fundamental misunderstanding of what distribution does, you know, uh, the oldest aphorism in business, and this is, I think, um, uh, your uh, good advice to clients, you can eliminate the middleman, but not the middleman's functions, all right? Mm, no free yeah. lunch, as economists say. Someone's got to perform that activities. The classic function of the distributor, and this still remains true, is to amortize that over multiple products, multiple segments, etc. The other is, I think, a misunderstanding of what change and you know, so-called creative destruction is about in business. Distribution has always been one of the most innovative sectors of the economy. Not the same distributors. They come and go. You know, Avnet yeah. will sell X or buy Y, but what the intermediary does is constantly changing. In other words, value-added resellers have always been value-added resellers. And when that value depreciates, someone else comes in to provide the new value. So why is it that we're constantly fighting this battle 
to to justify the role of of channel partners in the go to market process and i get that that there is an expense to it but look I, you've looked at the numbers like i have is that on on average a channel sale is 10% more profitable than a direct sale that you get more market coverage at a less expense if you're working with partners and look if don't even think about servicing smaller developing markets around the world without working through some local distributor yeah. right so why what is it about channels that makes the selling you know that makes you know uh, cfos or cro's or sales leaders look and say well we don't need that well i think there's a um, a couple of things that are systemic um one is uh, the way most accounting systems work in most businesses all right, accounting systems are about costs. They uh, basically report that cost one way. The opportunity cost of doing it a different way, again, you can, you can eliminate the middleman, but not the middleman's functions. That's not what accounting is about. So, you know, the manager looking at numbers quarter by quarter by quarter sees the cost. He has to understand his or her business model to understand whether this is in fact the best feasible way to do it. Um, the other thing that I think uh, uh, drives this, uh, you may be familiar, you know, this is sort of one of the handy rubrics that is used in the textbooks for decades, the so-called four Ps of marketing, product, price, promotion, and then place, which for, I guess for purposes of alliteration is always referred to distribution. If you think about those four Ps, the hardest to put in place, and once in place, the hardest to change is distribution, because it's, you know, it involves agreements between multiple independent entities, salespeople at those independent entities, et cetera. So the result, I think, in many markets is that there is a systematic lag effect between the company's go-to-market, including its uh, distribution system, and where the buyers are today. So part of it is what you might call the way the numbers are counted, but part of it is that distribution is that area of business which very often lags what's required. In fact, if you look at most innovators, most so-called disruptors thus far in the 21st century, they're not product plays. They're fundamentally, fundamentally channel plays. And that's mm. the reason they're taking advantage uh, quite rightly of that systemic lag effect. But that doesn't mean distributors and distribution go away. That, that's a false conclusion from what we're saying. So what do you think when so if somebody asks you, because again, your book is about, you know, how to sell in an ever-changing world, what's the what's that one quintessential piece of advice you give them or the feedback you give them to say this is what you need to be doing to stay current or even to remain relevant? Again, I get back to uh, ground truth, and that's about the buyer and the buying. In the history of business since the Phoenicians. A market or a market segment has never bought a damn thing. Only individual accounts and customers buy. The beginning of any wisdom in sales and selling is to understand to whom you're selling to and who at that account buys, 
why and how. And ultimately, that's what salespeople get paid for. They get paid to know everything there is to know about who buys why and how at their target customers. So that would be the one uh, piece of advice. And again, like most good pieces of advice in business, it's easy to say, but hard to do. So true. And that's the one thing that won't change. So Frank, Frank Zapitas, the author of the new book, and I'm going to say it again, just to make sure I get it right, is the you know sales management that works, how to sell in the world that is that never stops changing. Frank, this is great having you on the podcast. I hope we can have you back again sometime. Larry, I'd love to. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. And that's all the time we have for yet another episode of Changing Channels. If you like what we've had to say here, please, you know, smash that like button below, subscribe, tell your friends to subscribe, subscribe to our, you know, our audio podcast to all the other audio channels. And if you have any suggestions or if you have anything you want us to cover, shoot me an email directly, lmwalsh at channelnomics.com. We'll make it happen for you. Until then, keep changing your channels. Thank you for joining Changing Channels with Larry Walsh, a production of Channelnomics, with the support of our production team at Modern Podcasting. If you've enjoyed today's episode, hit the like button, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and share with your friends. For more information about Channelnomics services and insights, follow us on Twitter and YouTube, and check out our website at channelnomics.com. Channelnomics is a registered trademark of, and Changing Channels is copyright by, 2112 Enterprises, LLC.